Brothers and sisters, we extend a warm welcome to all our brothers and sisters who have joined us in church this morning for worship of our Triune God. We also welcome any visitors who have joined us this morning, also those who are with us remotely via the live, live stream. May we all be comforted and encouraged by the preaching of the gospel, and may God be praised and glorified by our worship. Consistory has the following announcements. Brother Ortinal Gakona and Sister Samantha Hufink from the Free Reformed Church of Byford have indicated their intention to enter into the marriage state according, according to the ordinance of God. They desire to begin this holy state in the name of the Lord and complete it to his glory. If no lawful objections are brought forward, the ceremony will take place, the Lord willing, on Friday the 23rd of September at 1pm in the Free Reformed Church of Byford with Reverend R. Eichelbaum officiating. This morning's service will be led by Brother Plater. And before we sing, before we start, let us sing together Psalm 65 verse 1. <clears throat>
So we just sang together, we said, we talked about the righteous judgments he has taught. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God teaches his people his, his perfect law. And one of the major themes in Deuteronomy as you read through it is that God's law leads to life. It leads to the abundant life. It was designed for, for human flourishing. And this is especially true through Jesus Christ. Jesus not only embodied, embodied this ab abundant life, but also came to give us that abundant life. As he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. And so as we hear the covenant law that God has taught us this morning, may these words, may you hear that abundant life that Jesus has obtained for us through his perfect obedience and his perfect righteousness. So here then, the, the law of God, as we find it in Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them. Or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. And our Lord Jesus Christ summarized the law under th in two ways. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And he said, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let us now sing about God's perfect law with the words of Psalm 19, verse 3. to God and confess our sins before him and also ask that he would enlighten our eyes as we just sang. Let's now pray. 
Dear Heavenly God and Faithful Father, your law is, is sound and whole. It will revive the soul, for it new strength supplies. Your precepts plainly show how right they are, and so the heart they cheer and brighten. Father, we confess that often this is not the relationship that we have with your law. Instead of your law being refreshing to our souls and life-giving, our hearts often tell us that your law is soul-deadening and life-taking. Often our hearts tell us that it's a killjoy and even that it's enslaving. Daily we, we buy the lie that the abundant life and that true freedom comes when we forfeit your law, when we turn away from your righteous judgments, when we turn aside from walking in the way of the Lord. Lord, such is our fallen and twisted view of your pure commandments. But Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus Christ into this world to redeem us from our slavery to sin, to, to free us from its chains and to break its seductive power over us and remove the burden of, of guilt. Father, we thank you that Christ perfectly embodied your law, that he walked in your ways perfectly, that he lived that life in abundance that you had designed for all humanity. And we praise you that instead of eternal death, which we deserve for our sins, that you grant us that life in abundance through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Father, we give you thanks and praise for that. And so we also pray, gracious God, that you would forgive us of the sins of this week. We pray that you would renew us by your Holy Spirit, that you would sanctify us by your life-giving word, that we may walk in your ways, in the way of life. May your word shine forth with radiance clear. And as we sang, so our eyes enlighten. May it be a holy seed that is planted deep into our hearts, that sprouts forth, producing some a hundredfold, some fifty, some thirty. May it lead to fruit. Lord, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our precious Savior. Amen. So last week we went through Genesis 37, verses 1 through 11, the opening section of Jacob's life, I mean of Joseph's life and Jacob's family. And now we're going to continue and also continue with what happens to Joseph with his brothers. So let's read together from Genesis 37, and we'll read the, the whole chapter. So Genesis 37, we'll begin at verse 1. And as we're reading, be mindful that verses 12 through 36 will be our, our text for this morning. So let's read together. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were, were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him 
But his father kept the saying in mind. And here comes our text. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he may rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit, and saw that Joseph was not in, in the pit, he tore his clothes, and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and, and where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their, father's, to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our lives. After the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing from hymn 52, verses 3 and 4. Brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we continue our study of, of Jacob's family. You may recall that last time we, we took a closer look of, of, at Joseph's dreams. And we saw that in those dreams that, that God was at work in this family. That despite the messiness in their lives, that God was there working to fulfill His, his promises. Those covenant promises that He made. We looked at the dynamics of, of Joseph's childhood home. There was favoritism, there was envy, there was hatred, there was jealousy, there was dysfunction, bitter resentment. We took a closer look and we saw that there was more going on behind the scenes. That there was a backstage, that God was at work in the messiness. And this morning, once again, we'll, we'll take another look behind the curtain, as it were. The, the stage set has, has changed the actors have moved on to the next scene, and the scene that we're about to see isn't pretty. What we're about to witness in this passage is, is quite grisly 
and horrific. There is jealousy, once again. But now it's grown into a desire for murder. There's resentment. There's even enslavement. So we see a lot of wickedness with God's people. But although the scene has changed, we see once again that there's more going on. That our God is sovereign over his people's wickedness. And that is the theme for this morning. Our God is sovereign over his people's wickedness. And we'll see three things. Firstly, we'll see that God is sovereign over the wickedness of the pit. Then we'll see that God is sovereign over the wickedness of the cross. And then we'll see that God is sovereign in the wickedness of the pew. And by that I mean the church. So firstly, then the wickedness of the pit. So last time we ended up, ended off, I should say, at a bit of a cliffhanger. Verse 11, it says, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So the curtains closed. We were, we were left in our red chairs thinking, what's going to happen to Joseph? What would the brothers do? As we saw last time, the, the powder was in the cake, and we were just waiting for a spark to just set everything off. Well, this morning, we find that spark. Joseph's brothers were pastoring their father's flock near Shechem, we read in verse 12. Now, why Joseph, who was a shepherd's assistant, which we read earlier in the passage, why he wasn't with his brothers, we don't know. Maybe it was another perk of being dad's favorite. The text doesn't tell us. But regardless, 17-year-old Joseph was not with his brothers. He was at home with dad. And after some time, dad starts to wonder about the welfare of his sons. And so he commissions Joseph to look into that. He says to them in, in verse 13, he says, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? And then he says, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flocks. And so Joseph obediently takes the, takes the, the command of his father and off he goes. And he makes that day's journey to Shechem. And so off he goes looking for his brothers, but as the text tells us, he does so without any luck. He's left wandering in Shechem where his brothers are. And then we get this very interesting little section of our passage where Joseph is found by a random stranger who sees him and asks him, what are you looking for? And he says, well, I'm looking for my brothers. And the stranger says, oh, I know where your brothers went. I, I actually heard that they, they went on to Dothan. You'll find them there. And so Joseph continues on to Dothan, the extra 12 Ks. And so he's far away from the safety of his father's home. And that's the little point of that interlude. Because you could take that little section out and, and you could change a few details and the story would continue seamlessly. But here the author awakens fear in our hearts. He shows just how vulnerable Joseph really is. He's far away from home. He's, he's wandering about in the, in the field like a sheep. Easy prey for jealous brothers. He's helpless and he's alone. And as Joseph nears Dothan, the brothers look up. They see Joseph walking towards them wearing his, his fancy coat. And with that, the, it, their blood immediately starts to boil. Without any hesitation or reservation, the brothers begin hatching this plot, this scheme, to put an end to the dreamer for good. They say, here comes this master of dreams. Come, let us murder him and throw his body into one of the pits. And then, as a cover story, we'll just say that a ferocious animal has devoured them, devoured him. Let's see what becomes of his dreams. Thankfully, Reuben was there. If he hadn't, humanly speaking, Joseph probably would have been killed. So for a moment, Reuben is able to persuade them not to shed his, his brother's blood and instead throw him into the pit while he would have time, he kind of bought time so that he could rescue him. Yet while Reuben is away, as soon as he comes into the picture, he's out of the picture. And while Reuben is away, the evil of the brothers shows itself in full force. As soon as Joseph Gets to his brothers, the brothers seize him, they strip him of his, his kingly robe and they dump him into the pit. And the words used in verses 23 to 24, it speaks of very violent action. 
They strip him. And that word is often used for skinning an animal. And then they throw him. They don't lower him into the pit. They just dump him into the pit. And then while their brother is wallowing away in the pit, the brothers sit down and they have a meal. While their brother is crying in the pit, they callously have a meal. But it gets worse. As the brothers are eating, they look up and they see these Ishmaelite traders coming their way with all kinds of, uh, all kinds of products that they're bringing to Egypt. You see, Dothan was an international, was next to, I should say, an international trade route that ran from Syria in the north down to Egypt in the south. And so seeing these traders, Judah gets this grand idea. If they can't kill their brother, why don't, why don't they profit from his downfall? So they lift their brother out of the pit. The money is exchanged. The slave traders slap on the iron fetters. They slap on a collar of iron around his neck, which we read in Psalm 105. And you can just hear the distress of his soul pleading, begging them, guys, what are you doing? Please, please stop this. Help me. But no response. And off he goes, dragged down to Egypt, distressed and afraid. Brothers and sisters, do you see the wickedness in this passage? Because many of us, some of us especially, probably have read this story so many times, And it's easy to become desensitized to what actually happens. It's a grisly story. Constantly the author tells us, he says, the brothers did this. The brothers did this. 21 times the author makes it clear. This was the brothers. Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And then as cover story, they tell their father that a a wild animal has devoured him. And he eats up their cover story. But the author is showing us who the, who the real beasts are. It's the brothers. They are the fierce animals who like Cain pounced on their, their brother in the open field. This is what that favoritism and that jealousy and all that hatred. This is what happened. This is what it came to. It came to the evil of the pit. It came to the evil of their brother being dragged off into slavery. As was mentioned, we cannot become desensitized to that, to the wickedness that we are witnessing. But at the same time, we we can't remain there. Because what our passage is showing us is that God is still at work here. That He is working through the wickedness of this family. Without taking any of the responsibility away from what the brothers did, God shows us that He is in control. God was busy in the life of Jacob through his favoritism. God was busy in the lives of the brothers through their wicked actions, as we'll see later on with Judah. And God was at work with Joseph, working through the horrible experiences that he suffered. God was sovereign over it all. And we get a hint of that at the last, the last verse of our text. It says, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And so in the hopelessness of our text, the author gives us a beacon of light. He says, wait a minute, there's more going on here. Don't let all that wickedness blind you to what's really happening. God is at work. And if we just consider all the so-called coincidences in our passage, we can see that. So firstly then... Joseph goes off to find his brothers in Shechem. Now the story could have ended there because he couldn't find them. But then he happens to find a man there who knows where the brothers went. Who knows exactly where they went, that they went to Dothan. And so he happens to find this stranger who, who happens to hear about where the brothers went. And so off he goes. And then, when the brothers are plotting murder against Joseph, Reuben happens to be there to prevent the brothers from murdering him. But then we see that Reuben leaves and Joseph is sold into slavery. So he's there to prevent murder, but he's not there to prevent the brothers from selling him into slavery. And then we see that the brothers are right next to Dothan, which is a trade route. 
And there happens to be Ishmaelite traders going along that route at the exact time. If you think about it, it could have been weeks, months for trades to go past. But there they are at the exact moment, at the exact time. And so although no one realized it in, the, in this text, no one realized that God was using the wickedness of Joseph's family to bring Joseph, the ruler of Jacob, one step closer to the Pharaoh's throne. As we saw last time, this is essentially the genesis of, of Joseph becoming a ruler in Egypt. And so we see that the brothers tried to silence the dreamer by getting rid of the dreamer. But God used their wicked schemes to bring Joseph one step closer to the fulfillment of those dreams. God was bringing Joseph one step closer to the fulfillment where he would use him to fulfill all those promises that he made to Jacob. That he would use their wickedness for his plan of redemption to make Jacob's family a great nation as we saw last week into a nation of blessing. And he'd bring them into the promised land, the land of blessing. So God was at work. He was sovereign over the wickedness that we see at the pit. And when we see God's sovereign control over the wickedness of the pit, it foreshadows and it should bring our attention also to what we see at the cross. And that brings us to our second point. God is sovereign over the wickedness of the cross. So we need to take our our eyes off the pit and we need to move them to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's amazing the likeness of what happens to Joseph and what happens to our Savior. And it starts already at the beginning of the passage. We see that Joseph, it goes off and he obediently, he obediently fulfills the commission that his father gives him. And he was diligent in that, seeking his brothers even when they went further. And in this we see a glimmer of the obedience of Jesus Christ, who was sent by the Father and willingly and diligently obeyed his Father's command. This was his purpose, we read in John 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And it was the will of his Father to secure the peace and the welfare of his people, to bring shalom to his people. But as it says in, in John, in the opening, uh, opening chapter of John, John 1, verse 9, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus Christ, as we see throughout his life, he was rejected by his very own people, by those who should have received him. And as soon as he begins to preach the kingdom of God, he's he's rejected. When he announces that he's the anointed one in his hometown in Nazareth, they nearly put him to death. When he goes around preaching about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is, is at hand, the rulers and the Pharisees we read quickly start plotting to see how they might destroy him. He suffered throughout his whole life, facing rejection, facing jealousy, facing hatred. And all of it comes to a head at the end of his life. When one of his very own, like Judah, sells him for a prophet. Think of Judas Iscariot, selling the Lord of glory for 30 shekels of silver. And it was out of jealousy You may recall, it was out of jealousy and and murderous hatred that they crucified the very Son of God. Like the brothers, they said, shall he reign over us? Shall the Son of God reign over us? Away with him, crucify him. Let's, Let's see what becomes of his dreams. And when Pilate asked the bloodthirsty mod, shall I crucify your king? They say to him, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king. And they strip him of his robes. They whip him. They beat him. They place him naked on a cross. They drove nails through the hands that healed people, that cleansed lepers, that broke bread, that raised people from the dead. And as he sat there gasping for breath, they mocked and said, he said he could destroy the temple in three days and rebuild it again. He can't even save himself. Let's see what becomes of his prophecy. Let's see what becomes of his dreams. Brothers and sisters, do you see the wickedness of it, of it all? 
Do you see the grisly horror of the cross? This is not the the darkness of a pit. This is the darkness of hell itself. The brothers and sisters, like what was happening in the pit with Joseph, there was more going on at Calvary. When the stage lights are turned off, when the darkness seems to have triumphed over the light, when it seemed like death had had struck its final blow, God was there, accomplishing His plan of salvation. Salvation for all of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Our great God was sovereign over all that wickedness, over the wickedness of His people. And He uses that wickedness to overthrow all wickedness. You see, the power of hell was overturned by by its darkest deed, the killing of the Son of God. God was sovereign over that and he used that to destroy all evil. And this is what our brothers and sisters long ago recognized. The saints of Acts recognized this in their prayer in Acts 4. They recognized that God used the wickedness of his people to accomplish his plan of salvation. They said, in Acts 4, they said, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And then note this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They recognized that God was sovereign over what happened at the cross. When they saw their Lord crucified, it didn't lead them to despair. Later on they realized, no, God was at work there. That God had planned that. God had planned that to accomplish His plan of salvation. What they recognized is that God didn't simply just react to the evil actions of men. He didn't just bring good out of a bad situation as though the the evil happened and then He thought, oh, i got to switch this up so that good comes out of it. But rather... Though his people planned evil, God used the evil that they planned to accomplish his good purposes. And brothers and sisters, that's key. If you remember one thing from this sermon, remember that. That although God's people can plan evil, God uses their evil plans for his good purposes. That's how mighty and sovereign our God is. You see, with Jesus Christ, God's people tried to destroy him and get rid of him. But God used that to raise Jesus up so that he is seated at the right hand of God. And so we see, similarly, like with Joseph, the rebellion and the rejection against the lordship of Jesus Christ, it led one step closer to the fulfillment of Christ's lordship over all things. And so we see that God was at work in all the wickedness of his people, fulfilling his plan of redemption. God was sovereign over all of that. And the same is true for us today, brothers and sisters. And that brings us to our last point. That God is not only sovereign over what happened with Joseph. God is not only sovereign over the wickedness that happened at the cross. But God is also sovereign over the wickedness of his people. You see, having read through the whole of Genesis 37, we're confronted with a very... A very stark reality. Something that all of us need to grapple with in our hearts. And it is this. In Genesis 37, we're reading about the church. We're not reading about the wicked pagans of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those unbelievers who who rejected God completely. And who were just following in, in their own way. We're not reading about them. We're not reading about the wickedness of the men after the flood. We're reading about God's people. This is the people whom God had singled out to be his special heirs of his his kingdom. Whom God had singled out to be a nation of blessing. So that in them all the families of the earth would be blessed. And when we look at what happens in this family, it seems that that is the furthest thing from the truth. How could this group of partial, deceitful, jealous, murderous 
Even enslavers be God's people at all. Be the church. This is the church. And as much as we should be horrified by the wickedness of what we see in in Jacob's family, and even when we reflect on the wickedness of the cross, brothers and sisters, this is a picture of you and me. Because that same wickedness resides in our hearts, in your heart. If you look at your own heart, what do you see? You see jealousy. Do you see envy? Do you see hatred? Do you see selfishness? Do you see favoritism? Do you see destructive thoughts? Do you see bitterness and resentment? See, the evil of this passage wasn't just dwelling in the hearts of those who were around the pit as they sat down and had a meal. No, the evil of this passage also dwells in our own hearts. It's in the pew, it's in the church. Brothers and sisters, think of your life. Think about what you've done. Think about the thoughts that fill your head. Think about what you you linger and think about. And think about what you've done. Maybe it was the way you treated your, your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Maybe it's the way you've treated your spouse. Maybe it's the way you you were acting towards your parents. Maybe it was the way you you were bullying someone at school. Or maybe it's what you did on vacation when you were alone with, with all the guys. Or maybe it's what you did on a business trip. Whatever it is, brothers and sisters, you can fill it in. And if you reflect on that, you can see that this is not just wickedness that is with the brothers, but this is wickedness that is in our own hearts. And so what our passage is calling us to do, it's calling us to repent of that. To repent and confess our sins. That we are just as wicked. It's calling us to turn to our Lord Jesus Christ. To fall down at his feet. To fall down at the cross. And acknowledge that we are wicked sinners. And brothers and sisters. As we confess our sins. We should not despair. Because like Genesis 37, where God was at work and he was sovereign in the wickedness of these brothers, God is also sovereign in our wickedness. And that gives us hope as we deal with the consequences of our own sin. You see, sometimes God does not always restrain us from the wickedness of our hearts, but allows us to walk in the way of our hearts. And this is not to to burden us with guilt, but it's to show the sad reality of life apart from God. To show the sad reality of our own sinfulness. To show us our need for the gospel. And he doesn't show us that just to drive us away from him, but it's to drive us towards him. To drive us to our Savior. To show us our need for his love and for his grace. So beloved, even as you grapple with the wickedness of your own heart, know that our God is so mighty and so powerful and so sovereign that he can use even our own wickedness for his glorious purposes. But not only does our passage call us to repentance, and not only does it comfort us when we grapple with our own sins and what we've done to other people, This is also an extreme comfort for us when we suffer at the hands of our own brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, you know how it goes. You probably know someone who has been extremely hurt by what someone else has done in the church. Maybe it's someone that you were walking alongside and trying to encourage. Or maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's you. Maybe you were hurt by something that was said after a consistory meeting. Maybe you were extremely hurt by the fact that people seem to always ignore you and go to someone else who seems to be the favored one in the congregation. Maybe you were extremely hurt by a Christian business partner who, was, who didn't seem so Christian after all. Or maybe from a friend at school. 
Or maybe, brothers and sisters, it was in the bedroom of your own home. And you think to yourself, people in the world who don't even believe in God don't even do this. If this is what it means to be church, if this is what it means to be Christian, then I'm out of here. And it can be very understandable that you think that. It would have been very understandable if Joseph thought that. As he was sitting in the pit, as he was dragged off to Egypt. Well, I guess that's it. I'm over them. But it wouldn't have been faithful. In congregation, the Holy Spirit has a word for us in this passage. And it's a word of amazing comfort and encouragement. It's showing us that God is sovereign not only over the sins that we commit against others, but shows us that God is sovereign over even the sins that we experience from other people. And I don't say that flippantly, because sometimes we can easily say it flippantly, as if it's just a catch-all phrase. And it can be belittling, and even, it can even add to the pain. But brothers and sisters, what Genesis 37 is teaching us is that it's true. That God is using even the wickedness of those in the church that is committed against us for his purposes. And that is ultimately for our good. And that is ultimately for, our, for your welfare, for your flourishing. Joseph didn't know that. Joseph didn't know God's plan for his life when he was in the pit. When he was being dragged off to Egypt. He didn't know the greatness of redemption, that, that, God would, that he would be a tool in the hand of God to, bring, to be an instrument of blessing for the whole known world. Joseph didn't know that. He didn't know that when he was sold into slavery. He was simply in a pit. He was simply in the darkness of being just almost destroyed by his brothers. This wasn't something that he knew right in the time, but this is something that he learned looking back. This is, some, this is a perspective that he had looking back over his life. And brothers and sisters, this is a perspective that, our, that the Holy Spirit gives to us so that we don't have to have the same despair in our suffering, but so that we can see the story of Joseph and we can have that same perspective, knowing that God is sovereign over the wickedness of his people, that God is sovereign over what we experience, even at the hands of our brothers and sisters. So it gives you perspective in your hurt. It gives you comfort. God will not always restrain the wickedness of others against us, nor will he always restrain the wickedness of our own hearts. But ultimately, God is sovereign over wickedness and the wickedness of his people. And you might say to yourselves, well, that's, that's all fine and dandy for you to say. But how can you be so sure? Well, it's because of what we saw in our second point. It's because of the cross. Just look to the cross. Where we see that God overturned the wickedness of the pit, the wickedness of the cross, for his glorious purposes. And that was salvation for all those who believe in Jesus Christ. And that means, brothers and sisters, that he will overturn the wickedness in the pew and the wickedness in the church. So don't grow weary. Don't become faint-hearted or despair of God. God's plans will not be thwarted by our evil. His power and his wisdom and his governance over this world is so great that he uses what people plan in their wickedness. He uses to accomplish his gospel purposes. And so that means our tears and our sorrows in this life is not for nothing. Even though it may look like that in the depths of our despair, in the depths of the pit, as Paul himself, who tasted such suffering, he said in Romans 8 verse 28, he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Beloved congregation, that is truly the glorious backstage of our lives. That God was sovereign over the wickedness of what happened to Joseph, the wickedness of the pit. And God was sovereign over the wickedness that we see at the cross. And God is sovereign over the wickedness that we have in our own life.
Not only the wickedness that we commit against others, but also the wickedness that we experience. Brothers and sisters, that is the glorious backstage. Amen. Let us now sing in response hymn 52. come before God in prayer, we will we'll give thanks to our Father for giving us Father's Day and for the fathers that he's put in our lives, and so we'll remember them in our prayer. And then we will also give thanks with uh, our brother and sister Adam and Chabin that they have been engaged, and we'll pray that God will bless them as they prepare for their wedding day. So let us come before God in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we praise you that our wickedness cannot thwart your plan of salvation. That the evil of us, your people, will not threaten your, your gospel plans. For Lord, your word has gone out. Your plan is set. You will accomplish what you have begun. We thank you for the perspective that this gives us as we suffer the consequences of our wickedness and the wickedness of others. Even as our cry goes up, how long we can be comforted to know that, that you are Lord of our whole lives. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And that you are sovereign over it all. And Lord, we pray that you would, you would give us the strength to accept this truth. That we may be comforted. That you would also work in us a spirit of repentance where repentance is needed. And Father, if we are here and we doubt your goodness because of what we experienced, because of the hurt and the the evil that has happened to us, help us not despair. Help us not to despair of your goodness, but help us to look to the cross, for there you show your power over all wickedness. Almighty God, we also give you thanks for the fathers, the husbands, and the grandfathers that you have placed in our lives. Today we can celebrate and remember the gift of fatherhood. We thank you for the dads here in this church who are faithful and who, who are good fathers to us. We pray that you would bless them. We pray that, you, you may show, that they may show the same care for their children that you show for us, your children. We pray that they may exhibit the same good governance that you exercise over this world. And ultimately, we pray, Father, that would mirror your love and your goodness that you graciously bestow on us. For, Lord, we are not called enemies, but we are called children. And you have sent the spirit of your Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
This is one of the amazing truths of the gospel that, that though you are so great and you are so holy, that we can start our prayer by saying, Our Father. And Lord, we pray then that our fathers that we have may reflect you in, their, in the role that you've given them. And Lord, we also pray for those who would love to be a dad, who would love to be a father, but are not. Lord, you know the hurt and the, the disappointment that this creates. We pray that you would be with those in our midst who would love to have children but cannot. Those for whom Father's Day and, and Mother's Day is just another reminder of the unanswered prayers. Oh Lord, remember that we are only dust. And so if it is your will, please grant them the desire of, your heart, of their hearts. And Father, we also pray for those who don't like Father's Day because of the father figures that they had in their life. Or for those who struggle to accept your loving fatherhood because of the poor father figures that they've had. God, we thank you that you have a special care for the vulnerable and the oppressed. We thank you that you are a father to the fatherless and the orphan and a husband to the widow. And so we pray that you would help those to know your perfect love. That they would experience your goodness as their father. And may we as church, as we enjoy this day, may we also be mindful of those who may be struggling on a day like this. That we'd reach out to them and that we'd show the love of Christ. Father, we also give you thanks for the good, the good things that you work in our lives. And we think of our, our brother and sister, Adam and Chamin. We pray that you would be with uh, the Sibim family and, and also the Spiker family as they prepare for this wedding day. Lord, it's such a good thing when two people not only desire to live before you, but also to start a, a married life in you. Father, this is a, a working of your spirit in their lives. And Lord, we pray that as they prepare for their wedding day, that they would also prepare for not just one day, but for a lifetime of marriage. Lord, we thank you uh, for this gift, and we pray that you would be with them in the time of anticipation leading up to it, in the time of preparation. And Father, we also pray that you would, you would be with them and that you would grant them purity even as they experience a greater sense of commitment and that you would walk with them uh, so that in due time they would be able to be united in holy matrimony. Father, we pray that you would be with us in the rest of this day. Grant us an enjoyable time as we fellowship with each other and, and that we would in due time come to you around your word to hear the gospel once again this afternoon. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
as you go from this place, receive the blessing of your heavenly Father. The Lord bless you and keep you. And the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.